Hello, I am Oliver Tonby, Chairman of McKinsey in Asia. I am also your host. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. Asia is the world's largest regional economy. It is at the center of the technology revolution. It is at the center of consumption growth, consumers of the future. It is at the center of climate risk and what we need to do to mitigate. As our economies evolve further, Asia has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses everywhere. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today, we are double-clicking on the topic of technology. I am joined by three distinguished guests. Let me introduce Puneet Chandok. He is the president of AWS in India. I am joined by Shinichi Yokohama. He is the SVP of Security and Trust Office, Cybersecurity and Information of NTT in Japan. And I am joined by Vidya Ganasan. She is a partner with our technology practice across Asia, based out of Sri Lanka, and leads a lot of McKinsey's work on digital government and the digital economy across Asia. So first of all, thank you for joining us to all three of you. I'm just going to warm us up a little bit before we dig into the topic at hand. Let me just ask Puneet and Shinichi, perhaps starting with Puneet, could you just introduce a little bit what is AWS? Thank you for that, Oliver, and thank you for having me. Absolutely thrilled to be with all of you today. AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, for 15 years has been the world's most comprehensive and broadly adopted cloud platform. Uh, bringing it closer home to India, even in India today, AWS is the most comprehensive and the most well-adopted adopted cloud platform. We have hundreds of thousands of active customers in India, and this includes enterprises, digital businesses, startups, SMBs, and B2B SaaS companies. And we're also, Oliver, leading in India with a mission to empower builders and businesses to build a better India. So we want to be a force that moves the country forward. At a personal level, it's truly a privilege to lead this business in this part of the world and have the front row seat to what I call the largest technology revolution of our time, which is cloud. Thank you, Panit. Uh, Shinichi, maybe two words about what is NTT and the tech space? Thank you, River. NTT was a state-owned telecom company 35 years ago. Today, it is a globalizing ICT company. It is on the journey of transforming itself from a traditional telco to a globalized IT and communication combined companies. Revenue-wise, 80% Japan, 20% international, but people-wise, 50% Japan and 50% international. That's where we are. Thank you, and welcome to both of you. So I am going to move us into the topic at hand today, which is the ongoing technology revolution, to use Panit's words. So McKinsey and company, we've recently conducted a lot of research on Asia's standing from a technology perspective, and we see just tremendous change happening across the board. So I would love to dig into each of your two countries, India and Japan, and then afterwards go to Vidya for uh, Asia more broadly. But what are some of those changes that you're seeing in your markets when it comes to technology, the revolution, the technology adoption? Perhaps we start with Japan first, uh, Shinichi. Thank you very much. Japan, I'd like to express the situation in Japan from two different angles. One is the technology adoption by consumers. And actually, the consumer adoption is quite rapid and quick. Japan is now going into an aged society. 
But on the street, in the town, in the train, we see many elderly people using the state of the art consumer technologies, smartphones, online shopping, etc., etc. So the penetration of those innovative new technologies to the consumer segment is quite quick and rapid. Another angle is、uh, corporate usage. And I would say that the adoption of the new technologies and more so in the way the business is conducted, such as digital transformations, the adoption in the corporate segment is probably relatively speaking slow if we compare the speed with the international markets. So there is a big discrepancy between the consumer adoption and corporate adoption. And let me just double click on what you just said there. You said it's a little bit slower, the corporate usage. Why is that? I think there are many, not many, maybe a couple of big reasons. The biggest reason probably is the slowness or hesitation to change the way the business is conducted within the Japanese organizations, in particular, the corporate organizations. And people understand logically. The value of the IT usage and technology usage, whereas there's always some hesitation, mental hesitations to change the way they do the business and such organizational kind of stickiness to the way that we are already doing that hinders the adoption of technologies and also the speed of the change of the way we conduct the business. That's probably the single biggest reason. Understand. Thank you,、uh, Shinichi. Puneet, let's move to India. Now, I imagine just from what Shinichi described that India is actually quite in a different spot. You don't have the aging society and what have you. So, what are the biggest shifts that you see in India? No, in India, Oliver, I think, first of all, we're starting to see what I call the perfect storm of digitization. And it's almost like a new digitally enabled India starting to emerge, which we are all quite, quite excited about. And there are three drivers for this, if I was to split this. The first is The India stack that's come together, and I'll talk about this in a bit. Second is just the surface area and runway we have for technology in India, given just the length and breadth and scale of India. Third, I think how I'm seeing, to Shinichi san's point, how I'm seeing builders and businesses in India now move at a speed and agility that we've never seen before. So let me unpack each of these, right? So the India stack is not new news. We all know about this. But to me, the key here is that India now has the three digital infrastructure highways, as we call it. Which are allowing businesses and, and India to move much faster, right? So, we all know about Aadhaar, which is the world's largest biometric system, 1.3 billion Indians enrolled. But the real benefit of Aadhaar is that today you can open a bank account in India in a minute using Aadhaar. That's the real downstream benefit. We all know about banking in India, how that's growing. We've added 400 plus million accounts in the last year, year and a half. 80% of Indians now have a bank account. UPI transactions are north of 2 billion, and compare that to American Express. UPI transactions in India are roughly 4x of what Amex does globally. And UPI is just two years old in India, right? So that's the second highway. The third highway in India is the mobile and data revolution. Again, not new news, but the interesting part is India, with 1.2 billion mobile subscribers, has the lowest data and voice rates anywhere in the world, which is again helping democratize technology and unlocking, right? So if you look at data consumption, Indians roughly consume 12 GB of data per user per month, which is much more than anywhere in the world, right? So that's the other unlock that's happening. Now, let's talk about the surface area or, or the opportunity in India. And I'll just give you two or three interesting statistics. India today has 40,000 startups. We are the third largest startup ecosystem in the world, 32 unicorns, 50 unicorns in the next year and a half. 
but the amount of investment and the the innovation that's coming in across b2c and b2b startups is just incredible not just startups india has 1200 plus enterprises today oliver who are going to adopt technology in a meaningful way in the next 12 to 18 months because coming out of covid they've realized the value of technology look at smbs india has 75 million smbs these are small and medium businesses they are the backbone of india they're roughly a third of india's employment half of our exports but again massive potential 98% of them don't really use technology in a meaningful way yet but imagine the unlock if we can digitize these smbs right so if you kind of bring all of this together i genuinely believe india today is the largest open market for technology companies to serve it's a complicated market it's a difficult market i won't take that away but it's just tremendous opportunity and runway to to serve these businesses and my last point around how are indian businesses and builders changing and i think indian businesses have been changing for a while but the last 12 to 18 months has really accentuated that change i think businesses in india have realized today that cloud and technology respond very well to uncertainty and if there's one lesson from the pandemic that we've all learned is that we're moving to a world which is going to be more dynamic and volatile than any of us can imagine and in that world you need technology and cloud to really help you manage the ups and downs of the business right and i'm seeing indian businesses today move at a speed that i've never seen before we we're actually drawing digital roadmaps in weeks and these were months and quarters right as you think about digital roadmaps and they're being executed in weeks and days we're seeing speed we're seeing openness like level before like never before a large bank in india is talking to recently they're trying software from a startup which is younger than my younger daughter and my daughter is 9 years old but that's telling you the openness and agility and innovation that's coming out of india right so and again if i go back to the mgi report right it spoke about speed collaboration resilience as the factors that will bring economies in 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 asia together and i'm i'm seeing starting to see all three of them and i genuinely believe if we can put our act together across the the foundational infrastructure across the businesses across the unlocks and democratization of technology this could really be india's decade there were many fantastic quotes in there one of them which i've noted is cloud and technology respond well to uncertainty i'm going to use that when uh, going forward thank you thank you puneet Vidya, let's turn a little bit now. We've kind of heard India, Japan. In some ways, it feels like they're like sometimes at the opposite end of the spectrum. For example, on the corporate usage and what have you. But tell us a little bit. What are you seeing across Asia more broadly? Yeah. So Oliver, as you highlighted, and as we've heard from Puneet and Shinichi San, Asia is obviously a super diverse continent with countries falling in different ends of the spectrum. Right on the one end of the spectrum, you have the Singapore's of the world, which are really setting the bar for what digitization of a country in terms of the consumers, in terms of government, in terms of corporates look like. Singapore almost sets the global benchmark in many ways. Right, for example, if you look at world government digitization indices singapore is up there right smart nation index it is consistently up there then the next category you have the large giant economies which are on a super fast trajectory of digitalization which is the indias of the world and the indonesias of the world like puneet said in a span of about 5 years india with its aadhar has set itself on a stage of digitalization of its population which is miles different to what it was 10 years ago right one example puneet gave was banking of the unbanked yet another from a societal standpoint is being able to give conditional subsidy transfers right so india is able to now link subsidy transfers to the aadhar scheme based on whether kids are turning up in schools right based on whether women micro entrepreneurs are repaying their loans and then on the other end of the spectrum you do have the more emerging asia which is the bangladeshs the laos myanmar cambodia sri lankas of the world 
where the impact of digitalization needs to be felt much more on the key economic drivers, like, for example, on agriculture, right? So, for example, how do we use the power of digital to be able to provide just-in-time weather advice to farmers, right? How are we able to tell them, look, it's time to harvest your cucumbers now at eight centimeters. If you wait two more days, you're really going to lose so many hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? That kind of you unleashing the power of digital to really help the average farmer to unlock the economy is going to be the game changer for that end of the spectrum. Got it. Shinichi, if I can go back to you and look at, if you look now forward, the next five years, 10 years, what are some of the biggest opportunities you see? And, and if you're one of the executives listening, what are some of the things you will be looking out for in the next few years? I'd look for a emergence of tech unicorns and lots of startups in the Japanese economy. As I explained, I'm observing a slow adaptation of technologies in the large enterprise. However, I do see an increased number of Japanese startups, typically the CEOs are mid-30s, mid-20s, and they are quite aggressive. And what is interesting was when I talked to those people maybe five years ago, they were initially looking at the Japan market. And then they wanted to expand the scope of the business from Japan to Asians, to Asia, and, th- and then to Europe and US. However, today, when I talk with those CEOs, they are starting to look at the international markets first, not necessarily starting from Japan. They have from the foundation to create a global IT companies. That's a strategic change of the way that they run the business. So in coming five, 10 years, I'd look for those startups, not Japan-based, maybe the you know, Japanese management, but Japanese youngsters looking for the international markets as their base foundation and growing strategically. That's what I'd look for for the next five to, 20, five to 10 years. And I have two follow-on questions from that, Chinichi, which is number one, are there certain sectors, subsectors, or certain technologies that you expect to see more development in? And then secondly, just going back to your earlier comment on the corp, the, today's corporates in Japan, are we expecting to see increase in pace of technology adoption in a little bit more innovation amongst them? Or do you expect more of the same? For the first question, although I'm not an expert on the exhaustive looking at the whole sectors, I would pick up the healthcare and financials. Those two sectors are where we have a very aggressive and unique startups, Japan-based. Probably because these two sectors are mostly regulated and where we have our incumbent, which creates new opportunities for the startups. So I would say healthcare and financials, in particular the more payments, are where we see those you know, aggressive attackers emerging in the Japan markets. Touching on to the second question, I would say that the, there is a tremendous pressure falling onto the slow-moving Japanese large enterprise. And this COVID also creates an additional pressure that the workforce has to change the way they work. And much of, lots of remote work is now progressing. So I would say that the increased pressure would push the large enterprise, change their behaviors in technology adoptions. And actually, I hope that creates a new market for the NTT to serve the changing the a large enterprise of Japanese corporations. 
Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. I understand. Thank you. Now, Shinichi said more unicorns over the next years, financial services, healthcare. Do you agree? Are these the sectors? What's your take from your India uh, starting point? One thing, Oliver, before I kind of react to that is I love the way, Vidya, you describe the, the lay of the land in, in Asia, right? And from develop to early stage innovation. And one thing that kind of sparked an idea in my mind was there is so much to learn from what's happening across Asia, right? And, and I know it's never easy to scale ideas even within a country, but I'm not talking about Asia, but I'm glad this conversation, Oliver, Vidya, you, all of you are orchestrating this. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a startup in India called Cropin Technologies, which is, we're working with them and they've actually digitized 2.1 million farmland in India. They're looking at crops and digitizing them so that the farmers can really move much faster. And this is as applicable in India as in Indonesia or other parts of Asia. So I just wanted to plant that seed. Uh, First of all, I'm glad we're having this conversation to learn from each other. But if there's a way for us to kind of scale these ideas up, it's a win-win. Back to your point, Oliver, on um, where would the next set of innovation and and learnings come from? I think fintech absolutely is the space where we're seeing the most amount of investments in India and innovation given just the opportunity to digitize India and payments. And by the way, with COVID, right, people have now realized that if you can't really get payments online and if you can't really transact with your customers, you're not going to have a business. So you need the digital interface and UPI's help. And there's a lot of innovation happening in fintech. We're also seeing a lot of innovation in an area which is not that that much talked about game tech, right? And we're looking at startups like Dream11 in India, which they've gone from 2 million subscribers to 100 million subscribers in the last three years. Imagine the scale. And they're really pushing the boundaries of how technology happens and how technology kind of plays. And, and the other thing that I'm seeing is there's a lot of also cross-pollination of ideas and learning. So I was talking to a media company recently, and they said, we want to learn from the game techs because the game techs are really thinking about problems at an industry level that nobody else is. So for example, if you're doing gaming today, you need a leaderboard at the industry level, which will say who's won and who's lost. Now, the moment somebody wins on an app, everybody complains that there was cheating and blah, 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 right? So you need an industry-level answer to that. And the media companies are saying, can we learn from that? Can we have an industry-level answer to what is the most interesting content to watch as an example? But again, the point I'm making is lots of these spaces, hotspots, but there's a lot to learn from across these sectors and drive growth in, in India and Asia. Yeah, I, I just want to build on that point, uh, the mutual learning opportunities between the sectors. And I would say that the on top of the sectoral collaborations or mutual learnings, uh, there's intercompany or intercountry learning opportunities. And the, we can learn from Singapore, we can learn from Indonesia, and other companies can learn from Japan too. So we, we should not miss these opportunities of intercompany, intercountry opportunities. Yeah, indeed. Vidya, same question to you. If you look ahead, what are some of the opportunities you see? And I'm going to make it more difficult for you. You're not allowed to say fintech or financial services. You're not allowed to say something that Puneet and, uh, and Shinichi San already have said. Excellent. I'm going to pick one that's very dear to my heart. Education technology. Also, as a mom of two kids who are homeschooling, and here in Sri Lanka, we're back to homeschooling this week. I think COVID, as it has done with many sectors, has done the decades and days phenomenon with education, right? So if you were to have told any of us about 18 months ago that our kids would be homeschooling with the benefit of technology, literally our nine-year-olds and our four-year-olds homeschooling five days a week, eight hours a day, we would have said, 
hell no, there is no way that is going to happen, right? Whereas we have actually seen that that is happening. Of course, questions around a lot more can be done to improve efficacy, effectiveness, mental health, holistic education, etc. But we've made huge strides in the last 12 months uh, in terms of education technology at different ends of the spectrum, right? Whether it is uh, K to 12 primary and secondary education, how we think of the teacher as a facilitator and really use technology to bring difficult concepts to kids in the classroom. Because if we were able to unlock this, this would be a huge game changer for countries like India and Indonesia, which struggle with high quality teachers, right? Uh, Especially for remote rural areas. If we are able to bring in a star teacher and beam the content of difficult physics concepts taught by a star teacher, right? And then the actual teacher in the classroom becomes more of a facilitator who focuses on holistic learning and tutorials, etc. That could really even the playing field for many of our kids, uh, especially in remote rural parts of Asia, right? But in addition to that, we are also seeing to leverage, to build on Puneet's point around game tech, we are really seeing a lot of gamification of education and education concepts. Many ed tech startups have really doubled down, or companies, unicorns now like the Baiju's of the world, have really doubled down on saying, how do we leverage the power of analytics? So if Vidya is slow at learning Newton's laws of motion, how do I convey those concepts to her in a slower manner and allow her to learn at her own pace. Whereas if Puneet and Shinichi-san are much faster, then I challenge them much more, right? So really being able to adapt the pace of learning to the individual student, that's another example of a game changer. And I can go on and on, but EdTech has surely been a space that has seen a lot of innovation in the last 12 months. I just want to add on to this EdTech point. Uh, When we say EdTech, it's probably not only for the kids but also for the adults. And in the society like Japan, where the aging society is now coming, the lifelong education is a must. So education for the elder people, so that they reskill and adapt themselves to the new environment, new technology, that's an indispensable element of the society needs. Oliver, just one more point, if you allow me. And I know EdTech is close to our hearts, right? I love what Vidya said. I love what Chirichi san said. I think there are two things that have happened in EdTech, right? One is the technology is ramped up, as Vidya said, right? Remote learning, personalized learning, all of that stuff. The other is we've seen trials and usage like never before, right? So if a student sitting in Patna, which is a small city in India, can learn maths from a teacher in Mumbai or Bangalore, who's much better, that usage was never happening before because now it was the only way to do it. And my worry is, tech is not my worry, right? Tech is easy to scale and, and, and last, but the, the habits are, are difficult to change, right? And uh, what we're trying to do, and I'd, I'd love some ideas at some point saying, listen, how do we make sure these habits stay, right? And how do we continue to build with that, to your point, an open learning environment where I can learn from a teacher in Singapore or Mumbai or Bangalore and not just in my city and keep that going versus falling back to the, the old ways of doing things. Exactly. This is the concept of lifelong learning and practice. Listen, I want to change topics, focus uh, with you for a few minutes here. And I want to zoom in on the topic of culture, organizational culture. Now, uh, both of you lead very large companies. These are huge. And it's not easy to drive innovation. It's not easy to try it, drive the kind of growth that you have seen. It's not easy to get the people doing the things that we need to be doing. So we just love some thoughts and some learnings from you of this topic of organizational culture. What kind of culture do you try to foster? How do you do that in practice? Puneet, perhaps you first with Amazon, um, with AWS. Sure, Oliver. 
Amazon, as you know, right, has a fascinating culture. Uh, it's unlike any other tech company or tech culture that at least I'd seen or experienced before. It's almost like being in an alternate universe that's moving at the speed of light. It's truly, truly that phenomenon. And at the core of this culture is uh, what we call Amazon's day one toolkit. And let me explain this. And, and before I kind of break the day one toolkit, it's also important to understand what does day one really mean? Because that phrase gets used a lot. But from an Amazon perspective, day one is a phrase that we've used all the time. I mean, it was in Jeff's shareholder letter 20 years ago. In fact, his letter, the exact quote was, it's not even day one, it's just the dawn of day one. And I believe the alarm clock hasn't even gone off yet, right? So it's that early in our journey. And the day one mindset at Amazon, Amazon pushes us to acknowledge that scale will very quickly become a liability unless you consciously work against it, right? And it's, it's really important for us to kind of remind ourselves of that every day. And, and this day one mentality helps us Really, the question that we're asking ourselves all the time is, how do we maintain the day one culture with the scale of Amazon? How do we operate like a large company, which is also an invention machine? And the analogy that I like, like to use is we want to be a big boxer who can take a punch on his, on his head. But at the same time, you're able and you can dodge these punches and you're nimble. And so being big and nimble at the same time is, is, a, is a problem statement, if you will. Now, let me tell you what this day one toolkit is and try and simplify it. It's, it's got lots of facets to it. But let, let me just talk about three things that are at the core of it. The first is this culture of experiments, which comes with the permission to fail. The second is customer obsession at the heart of everything that we do at Amazon. Third is high-speed decision-making. To me, those are the three most important. And let me unpack these. Let me start with culture of experiments. And I'll tell you a personal story. When I joined AWS two years ago, after 11 years at McKinsey, which I loved, and I still miss the firm a ton. But uh, so the first conversation I had when I joined was in Seattle with my boss. And I asked him, what would success look like for me and my team in this role? And he thought for a minute and he said, Puneet, success for you is the number of experiments you and your team conduct. Let me say this again. He said, success is number of experiments you and your team conduct. And I was scratching my head saying, listen, I haven't joined a science lab. I was expecting a number, a growth target. But that's the core of what we're trying to do. Right? And, and by the way, at Amazon, you have to be clear what an experiment is. right? So if you know in advance what it's going to turn out to be, it's not an experiment for us. By design, these are unknown things that we're trying. And then the other part of innovation at Amazon with these experiments is you should not have collateral damage or failed experiments. Because most businesses today, and I see them every day, right, embrace the idea of innovation and failure, but they're not willing to suffer the string of failed experiments that come, to, come with it, right? And Amazon, quite honestly, I believe is one of the best places in the world to fail. We've had some spectacular failures that we talk about very proudly. We're not shy about them. Fire phone, I'd, most people have forgotten about it, thankfully. But the people who built it are extremely successful at Amazon. A ton of our innovation after that, Eco, Alexa, actually came out of some of the learnings that we have from the Fire Phone, right? So it's okay to fail, and this permission to fail is really energizing. The second aspect of this day one toolkit is customer obsession. Uh, we truly want to be the Earth's most customer-obsessed company, and that kind of is the DNA in everything that we do. And another favorite quote from Jeff, and he said, and I'm going to quote him, he says, customers are always beautifully, wonderfully dissatisfied. Even when they report being happy and the business is great, even when they don't know it yet, customers want something better. And your desire to delight customers will drive you to invent on their behalf. And we have this term called divine dissatisfaction in Amazon, which we use all the time. And we all know this intuitively, right? Customer expectations are never static. They go up all the time. People have a voracious appetite for a better way. And the yesterday's delight and yesterday's vow will very quickly become ordinary, right? And the cycle of improvement, by the way, is even accelerated now in the last 12 to 18 months, given what we've seen. The mentality at Amazon is a big company, a big business at scale, but with an insurgent mentality. And many times we can actually tell our customers something is wrong with their experience even before they can tell us. That's the amount of orchestration and, and tooling that we are constantly trying to do. 
And we listen to customers all the time. I'll give you another example. AWS today, which is the largest platform for cloud, we've got 200 plus services. 90% of what we've built, Oliver, at AWS is driven by what customers told us. And sometimes when customers were not telling us, we were reading between the lines. But all our innovation is driven by the customer. It's not just because the technology is cool. It's because we want to solve real customer problems. And then the last part of this day one toolkit is what I call high judgment decisions at high velocity. Now, day two companies make high quality decisions. They make decisions all the time, but they make high quality decisions slowly. And that's not something we accept at Amazon. At Amazon, the speed matters. The philosophy is that most decisions should be made with 70% of the information you wish you had. And if you're waiting for more information, then by the way, somebody else or a robot can take that decision for you or an algorithm can take, the, take that decision for you, right? And that's where leadership and judgment comes in. And if you're good at course correcting, if you're good at learning, being wrong may be less costly than you think. Whereas being slow is really expensive for the business and we don't want to be slow. The question that we ask before we take any decision is this philosophy of a one-way door decision and a two-way door decision. And the, the, the intent is that some decisions are consequential and irreversible or nearly irreversible. These are one-way doors. And for these, I have to be the chief slowdown officer. But for most decisions in life, these are two-way door decisions. You can always come back. You can always change things. And by the way, the philosophy is in, in my organization, nobody's supposed to ask me for a two-way door decision. And I don't ask anybody for a two-way door decision. For one-way door decisions, we will slow down. But the problem is we don't differentiate between these decisions. Even ordering pizza for dinner tonight might be a, seem like a one-way door decision, but it's not. You can quickly take these decisions and move on. Right? So that's a little bit of what our story is. You have to move really fast. You have to take these decisions. At Amazon, we say yes more than any other company in the world. Yes to ideas. Yes to new things. Yes to quick decisions. We hate to fail, but we tolerate failure really well. And this permission to fail along with this culture of experiments, putting the customer at the heart of everything we do and moving fast is what, what I believe is a day one toolkit. And that's, that's what allows us to move at this speed. Very inspiring, Puneet. A little bit scary too, I must say, but very inspiring. Shinichi-san, can I, can I just ask you, because I think NTT is a older company and I think you're trying to transform as well at the same time. So how is that working and what is important to you? What kind of culture are you trying to drive? So it's a long story, but to make the long story short, the, the key words I would say first is the innovation with scale. Innovation with scale is the culture that I want to foster and actually infuse to these gigantic organizations. We have a hundred year history. We have 300,000 people and we provide IT infrastructures and telecom infrastructures. And the reason why people join NTT is to serve the society by providing a stable IT service, stable network service. So by nature, why we are working in NTT does not necessarily change so quickly or change the way we work so quickly. And people tend to prefer stability rather than change or agility. But just staying status quo does not generate additional value. So we have to change. So that fundamental dichotomy between the requests to change versus the preference to provide stable service to the clients and to the customers and how to integrate those two different value proposition into the way we work. That's a fundamental challenge of transforming of 100 billion, 300,000 gigantic companies into the tech age. More specifically, the way I lead this organization is first going back to the fundamental values. Why are we there? 
why are we working together within NTT? I talk with uh, ethical hackers because I lead the cybersecurity practice. And the reason why NTT's ethical hackers serving in NTT rather than going to uh, startups, etc., is that they want to serve to the society at a large scale. They prefer to generate a huge society impacts. We are the fourth largest IP backbone service provider in the world. If we increase our security with such fourth largest IP backbone service providers, that would hugely impact the global security of the internet. That kind of impacts-driven mindsets and values, why we are serving, working in NTT, that's fundamental things that all the people share within this company. And once we go into that value propositions or values, then it is easy to integrate two different dichotomy, one preference for stability, but also necessity to change and emphasizing and always going back to the values. That's the most single most important one that I have to emphasize in my communication to my team. Thank you, Shinichi. I'm going to ask Vidya, but I'm going to uh, a slightly different question, Vidya, which is if you look at what are some of the attributes that companies need to have if they want to succeed in the, I hope at some stage we get to the post-COVID-19 era, but in today's era and the future, what are some of those attributes companies need to succeed? May I go first? Please go ahead, uh, Shinichi, and then we'll go to Vidya. I like that question. <laughs> well, I'd say trust. Trust is the single biggest attribute that corporation needs to be needs to be successful in the post-COVID. We are going into the more and more connected world, and company has to be connected to others to be successful. And in order to be connected, you have to be trusted. And how to express and how to radiate and how to convince the trust, your partners, your customers, your stakeholders, that you are a trustworthy company. That single biggest attribute that corporations to be successful has to be you know, equipped with in the post-COVID era. So my answer is trust. Very good. Vidya? Maybe I would say three things, right? One is speed of decision-making, which many organizations have gotten to the crux of or have been forced into thanks to COVID, right? Layers of bureaucracy have been cut down. New decision-making processes have been formed that cut through reams of paperwork that's needed or weeks of dancing around an idea. It's really about then uh, an idea that Puneet and Shinichi-san alluded to earlier, which is how do we make sure we institutionalize some of the changes in speed of decision-making that COVID has enabled us to do and make it the new way of working, if you will, right? So I would say speed is kind of the first thing. The second thing is dealing with uncertainty, right? Ability to deal with and respond to uncertainty, whether it is through detailed resilience planning during peacetime so that you can literally trigger it during wartime, for lack of a better word, or having a crisis response team that is different from what we call a plan ahead team so that you are at the same time responding to crisis, but also making the most on doubling down on the opportunities that come out of a crisis to put strategic distance versus competition, right? The famous story after World War II of Post was the most famous cereal manufacturer. No one had a clue who Kellogg was, right? But some of the moves that Kellogg made within the first 12 to 18 months coming out of the World War II 
set so much competitive distance that today Kellogg is the most well-known cereal manufacturer. People barely even know of Post, right? So coming out of a crisis, the first 12 to 24 months can be defining and really doubling down on that in terms of being able to deal with the uncertainty, both from a risk mitigation perspective, but also doubling down on the opportunity perspective. That would kind of be the second thing. And the third thing I would say at risk of stating the obvious is resilience, right? Whether it is in terms of supply chain, whether it is in terms of holistic well-being of your employees, whether it is in terms of management of your partners, suppliers, etc. I think one thing COVID has really taught us is well beyond cost competitiveness, well beyond looking at the top line and bottom line. Resilience is just so important and it's not something that you can build overnight when a crisis hits, right? So thinking about resilience as as important and objective function would, would kind of be the third thing I would say. Thank you, Vidya. And Shanice, we talked about what are some of the attributes going forward that companies need to have. Let me ask, Puneet, what are some of the challenges that you, uh, you see? So I'll say, uh, just building on what Vidya and Shinichi-san said, right? I think three things that at least from an India vantage point, we need to work on at scale. The first is we have the raw material in India when it comes to talent, but we need skilling at a scale that we've never done before, right? So India produces the most amount of computer science graduates in the world, but that's not enough. A digitally skilled workforce in India is roughly 12% of our workforce. We probably need 9x this, this number in the next four to five years, right? And that requires skilling and and we did a recent study where basically a lot of these workers today in technology in India need to learn seven new digital skills in the next four to five years. And for a scale of India, it's not going to be easy. So I think we all need to put our heads together. Firms like McKinsey, technology firms like NTT and AWS, and of course, the government and an industry body. But we've got some work to do. Second is, I think just we've spoken about the power of technology. And, but for technology to truly democratize, we need access and connectivity, right? So India has 1.3 billion people. How do we make sure that they all have access to, for example, 200 plus services that AWS is today building from IoT to AIML to analytics? And AWS is just one example. And imagine the unlock if we can get 1.3 billion Indians to access all of this at a click of a button. We've got some work to do there. And then third is, to Shinichi-san's point, right? trust is important. And cultural transformations don't happen without trust. And India typically, traditionally has been a trust deficit society. We've had, that's the reason you had large businesses in India doing everything from salt to airplanes because brands mattered, trust in a few brands mattered. We now need to change that. We need high quality products and services and businesses to come out of India, which will then change the equation a lot more going forward. Thank you. Listen, this has been a wonderful conversation, very energizing, I must say. I want to ask you one final question and I'll ask each of you the same question. And the question is, what advice would you have for one of the senior executives listening to this podcast? If they're thinking about how do I take even more part in the digital revolution that's happening, capturing some of those opportunities, transforming my company. But what are some of the pieces of advice you would have for the executives listening to this? Let me start with uh, Shinichi-san, please. Thanks. My answer is to focus on talent. Talent, in particular, fostering the talent exchange within the company, or also without, uh, between the other companies or other sectors even other countries. At the end of the day, the single biggest assets, most important assets to win and to survive in the digitalized world is the people and talents. And the more talent you have, and the more those talents are connected to the different sectors, different society, different countries, you become more resilient, you become more trusted, you are secure, and 
that's the most important asset you can create by yourself. Well spoken. Focus on talent. Avidya, over to you. My suggestion would be, I'm a big believer in strengths-based development. So my suggestion for you would be, if there is one thing you reflect on coming out of the COVID crisis that you believe for your company was a huge unlock, right? Now, for some people, this is about remote work and working from home. For some people, it's about having unlocked the gig economy. For some, it may have been about unlocking women in the workforce. Whatever it may have been that was a big unlock for you and your company coming out of the COVID crisis, what are you going to do to institutionalize that and make that stick even after COVID is behind us versus letting that slip, right? That would be my one piece of advice. Puneet. I'll say three quick things, uh, Oliver. First is have the will to invent and reinvent, right? Acknowledge that you can't fight gravity. And sometimes you have to cannibalize what you're doing to innovate and to break things and try things. So I think that's first. And it starts with top management and executives. Second, uh, to Vidya's point, speed is a choice. It's not preordained. It's a muscle that you have to exercise every day for it to work. And you don't want to go. You, we've all moved at speed in the last few months. Don't go back like a rubber band to the old ways of doing things. Make sure this becomes a new metabolic rate, the new baseline of change in speed. Third is uh, a lot of people ask me, how do we innovate? How do we double our innovation rate? I give a simple answer. If you want to double your innovation, double the number of experiments you're doing. And we spoke about experiments earlier, but just doing experiments is not enough. Having the permission to fail and thinking about failure as a feature, not as a bug, which allows you to learn and do things much better next time onwards is a mindset change that I'd encourage all of us to think about. Thank you. I'm not sure that last uh, answer qualified because there was three and one there. <laughs> but they were all wonderful points, Puneet. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much to all three of you. You have uh, been uh, wonderful guests on this podcast. I wish each and every one of you a wonderful day. And thank you so much for joining us. And to all our listeners, I hope you had a, an interesting uh, listen and have a wonderful day ahead of you. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Oliver, for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.